Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Hello, I'm Kerry Lonigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. And today on The Grill, two of Australia's top market prognosticators, Matthew Dalgleish from Thomas Elder Markets and Chris Howie from Stocko in South Australia. Men, welcome back again. G'day, Kerry. How are you, Kerry? Let's begin where we left off a, a few months ago and the, the indicators or cattle prices. They've come off a fraction, I guess, but still a way ahead of what we thought might be the case. Is it just because of the rain, rain, rain and more rain, or are there, are there other factors? Oh, look, I think some of the rain certainly into Queensland helped. And, and in the last few weeks, Kerry, we've seen that Eki get back above 1100. I think it was 1130 yesterday from memory. So, you know, we spent quite a bit of time at the start of the year just sitting at 11.30 and then we kind of eased under it. But, um, you know, we've only marked north, I think, been a lot of the rain being fueling that in the north. Chris, you're consistently on the road. Is it uh, the free grass keeping prices strong in, in, in your part of Australia? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, South Australia got an opening last, well, this week. Uh, pretty much get the Victorian border and head north. It gets better all the way right through into Queensland now with the rain that they've had up there. We just started to see the ecchi sort of dropping in, in reasonable chunks. You know, it was coming down in fives and sixes, uh, and then that rain held it, and now we've started to see it push again. So it's, I, I believe it's just driven purely by grass at present. Yes, uh, the, the ecchi is uh, it's still a mind-boggling 1,126 cents a kilo. That's 231 cents ahead of this week last year. Is it still a fair dinkum indicator of the industry broadly, or is it just a, an indicator used mainly by uh, the big business end of town? Um, look, I, I, it is used, of course, Kerry. It's been, you know, it's, it's one of the most quoted ones, of course. But I, over the last probably you know, four years or so, I've actually been focusing a bit more towards the heavy steer. You know, it's the one that I prefer myself when I'm looking at an analysis, just because, you know, to my mind. It's the heavy steer that kind of sets all the prices down the down the chain, so to speak, to the other, you know, to your feeder steers, to then all the way to your younger cattle. So th- that's one that I look at personally. But yeah, you can't get past the fact that the ecchi is the one that most people look at. I'd agree with that. Yeah, yeah. the uh, the ecchi's got too many moving parts. So you've got influence. You know, we've had the rain in Queensland, which influences but those cattle have got no correlation to the cattle in the south. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm I'm with Matt. The heavy steer indicator is the end user. That's what drives everything else. Yes, yeah, so the, the ecchi is more about young cattle, isn't it, really? That's it. Now, one factor which uh, stood out for me in the first quarter beef stats, carcass weights averaged 324 kilos, up nearly 11 kilos on the same period last year, although numbers processed down, nearly 6%, meat production down just 2.5%. Did you uh, take any note of those figures? Did they stand out for you, fellas? Matt? Um, it did for me, and I mean, part of that, I think, Kerry, the other, the other side of that equation is, what we're slaughtering in terms of the gender of the animal, and you know, there's no surprise there. You got the heaviest, more more regular or more bigger amounts, I guess, of heaviest steers because the female slaughter ratio carriers um, down at you know lows we haven't seen in over a decade. So you know, proportionally, we're obviously you know slaughters down, but those um, heavier males are going through the system, and a lot of the breeding stock's been retained. Average carcass weights back in 2005, Chris, are 232 kilos. Anyone want to hazard a guess about the average carcass weight well before you were born, 1950? Average carcass weight, 1950? Have a stab at it. Well, that'd be in pounds, Kerry. Well, <laughs> well I've converted it. Thank you. Oh, great. Okay. I'd be about, it'd be about 185 kilos. Yeah, I was going to go 180. 
171. There you go. Yeah. So the carcass yeah. weights today almost double what they were in, uh, in 1950. That's extraordinary, isn't it? If, if you think about the Aberdeen Angus back in the 1950s, you'd fit it in the suitcase. It's a bit of a different animal now. <laughs> yes, indeed. The carcass weight they carry, if you think about it, we've got your grain feds come out pretty consistent, but we've got cattle that have now got two and a half years of grass and they're coming out, they're being marketed, they're not being pushed onto the market through lack of feed. And so everyone's just held them a bit longer and really capitalising on, I suppose, the genetic performance of, of their herd. And that's, that stands out with the meat production. It's down just 2.5%, despite the numbers process, down 6%. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. And another thing, I, I guess, uh, and, and Chris mentioned the, the grain-fed side of the equation, the, um, the numbers for the, the cattle on feed was out just not long ago, a week or so ago, and we've got back to... Uh, record numbers of cattle on feed, you know, so that's another aspect. And if you look at the, you know, I guess the, the proportion nowadays that are coming off as being grain-fed or grain-finished rather than grass-finished, we're, we're at about 56%, I think, now of what's been turned off as of first quarter of 2022 is now grain-finished. So that's the highest that's been forever. Yeah, Chris, yep. uh, you only word from the lot feeders, how much pain are they in at present? Anyone that's secured their, their grain forward, you know, not then. Some have got their grain secured well forward. Some are, some play a month or two months. If you're sitting in that month to two month market, you, you've got a bit of pain. The, the grain price, you know, every 70 days an animal's going to eat a ton of feed, mixed feed. With where grain prices have gone now, I think the margins uh, margin has disappeared pretty quickly unless you've got that like a preferential forward contract system with uh, some of the bigger end of town. This, I know it's, uh, it directly relates to prices for feed grain, especially up here in Queensland. The big wet across southern Queensland is causing a, a havoc in planting schedules and there's several hundred thousand or at least 200,000 acres in the, are on the downs that hasn't been planted yet. I think there's a couple of things, and Matt alluded to this before. The, the north are very reliant on the sorghum planting, yes. and, uh, which is extremely important because you know, everyone thinks it's grain and barley in the south, but a lot of sorghum use. And the other, the other underlier is canola. Western Australia two weeks ago, everyone I talked to in the last three or four days, canola is just the word. It's so much of it being planted, and I think that might be getting planted at the detriment to the other cereal, you know, feed cereal grain. Yes, well, look, all the portents are for a feed wheat shortage come uh, the end of the year and early next year. Does that seem reasonable, Matthew? Look, it's. Um, I mean, we have seen over the, the last few decades with, the, with that growth I mentioned about the feedlotting sector that you know the domestic demand for feed is increasing. Um, you know, each year, each year goes by, and so when we're in good years, you know, we, we're covering that. But it's when we get into those drought years is when we start to you know fall short. Um, that that that, that kind of domestic consumption for feed. Um, really, you know, you know, goes missing to some degree, and, and we, we saw some of that through the, the 2019 drought, where we had at one stage there we had a shipment or two that actually of grain that came back in to the country, um, which is incredibly unusual. But I think, yeah, the the prospect for going through periods of time of, of shortage of, of feed is going to be um, something we're going to have to get used to. I think. At the bottom line, of course, retail prices. I walked through my supermarket the other day and noticed that the supply side issues that we've been talking about earlier in the year, they seem to have been resolved, but gee, prices are going up and up. Any buyer resistance that you've noted or noticed in the marketplace, Chris, and where, where you go? I just Look, only through the articles that everyone sees, we saw that the red meat consumption had declined a little bit, although one of the supermarkets last night on television were advertising they're going to they're hold their 
their price the best they can. Meat's one of the, the, the staples. Your meat, bread, Coca-Cola, uh, milk. That's what people go to supermarkets for. So I, I think they'll offset against other retail items. The price, the price is actually just we can't do anything about it until we start to see numbers push back onto the market. Yes, uh, and related to that, Beef Central had an interesting article in the week about uh, t- t- taxation coming up to that dreadful date of June 30th, and Beef Central is tipping some, and I would suggest plenty of beef producers will have some tax bills looming at that time. Is this part of the sale yard gossip, Chris? Oh, definitely, uh, and and especially for us on the finance side of things, uh, we've got a lot uh, looking to buy, you know, and they're buying infrastructure, they're improving, if they're going to buy a mob of cattle, they want them on their books before 1st of June. There's some big tax bills uh, looming, although in saying that, you know, if, you may, if you're paying tax, you're normally paying money, uh, making money rather. But, uh, yeah, I think it, it, it's quite a big concern at present for a lot of the primary producers. After the last, they've had two good years in a row, which doesn't happen very often. Yes, that's true. Uh, Matthew, have you cited this at all? Uh, in terms of that kind of uh, yeah, tax implications, that's one you know, I, I steer away from that kind of stuff. That's uh, that's poison as far as I'm concerned. Any kind of tax advice, I'm not qualified to give, Gary. That's neither am I, can assure you. But would it contribute to producers holding back stock? And come July the 1st, there could be a surge when they start to sell again? Back to my agency days, yes. Yeah. Uh, you would get to this time of the year, if they've come up a good grain harvest, quite often they would hold uh, sales stock until July, just because, for, the, for that reason, and they'll set the next year up and away they go again. Time for a uh, brief message from our sponsors, Alenco Animal Health. You're on the grill with Beef Central. Don't let your cattle suffer the setbacks caused by buffalo fly. Combat buffalo fly with Corral, Patriot and Silence insecticidal ear tags. Providing up to four months of long-lasting fly control. Alanco has you covered with a range of ear tags to suit your rotation program. Contact Alanco and find out how you can win the Buffalo Fly Battle now. You're back on the grill with Beef Central. Our guest today, market gurus, Matty Dalgleish from Thomas Elder Markets and Chris Harry from Stockco. In your area of expertise, Chris, uh, Lambs and mutton. What's what's the uh, what's the outlook there for the next three or three months? I reckon we're right on the edge now. We're going to see some volatility. Mutton's already started to push. That started two weeks ago. Um, best mutton is getting up near lamb price at present. Wow. Uh, and and hard to find. Uh, lamb thirty nine thousand into Wagga yesterday, which is that's a big number for this time of year and a lot of weight. But there's nothing behind. So uh, I think trade lambs over the next two months are going to be in pretty short supply, and we'll see that normal increase in value as we go towards August. The lambings are definitely later now um, as a whole, so we're seeing that that flush of lambs that we used to see in July. That's probably closer to the end of August now. So I, I think there's some there's some good upside uh, in lamb at present. The issue that we, we had in the east and definitely in the west at present has been around processing capacity on the back of, uh, of staff. Uh, talking to a processor in Western Australia last week, they, they're desperate for staff. They just can't get them. Is is the glow still in the market? And is, is it being dominated by exporters? Are they taking most of our domestic form of domestic supply out? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say I'd say it's sort of just starting to balance out a little bit now. The supply of trade lambs is 
you know, domestic requirements still there, the supermarkets and the, and the wholesalers. There has been an excellent run of, of heavy lambs coming through. You know, I was in Wagga there a month ago and, you know, you're looking at lambs that are 32 to 38 kilo dress weight and, and 100 upon 100 of them in lines. And um, this has been one of those years where, whether it be off grain or grass, the lambs have just performed. Yet into the north, where we'd normally be looking for lambs now coming out of the New England and so forth, you know, they're more of a spring lamb. They've had an atrocious time with weather. Uh, it's been too wet. Uh, they were still getting flies last week in lambs. A lot of the feedlots have got had no performance. They've unloaded. So I think that's going to be where the hole appears, is, is those northern lambs that normally soak up a little bit of that uh, gap. Now, the skilled labour shortage that you mentioned um, across the bush, across regional and rural Australia, my contacts tell me it's vastly a story undertold and uh, undersold when it's even semi-skilled or unskilled workers uh, are still a problem. It's a nightmare getting people to work across the board. Is this what you've been hearing, Matt? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we did some analysis on Thomas Elder Marcus, Kerry, not that long ago, just looking at the backpacker issue part of it. Obviously, the labour shortage is, is across the board, but uh, what's contributing to it has been that lack of backpackers we saw through the COVID shutdowns. And for, for those that don't know, like on any, any given year prior to COVID, we're getting over 200,000 people coming through as backpackers that were going through and having to do a stint in those regional and rural communities. But the key to that was that the, the second year backpackers that hung over each year, there was, that was about 20% of those backpackers stuck around for another year. And if they'd been doing farm work, they were a bit more experienced and a bit better, so they were quite sought after. And that, that equates to, you know, 40,000 odd, you know, people around the country flown about at any given time. Since COVID, you know, 2020, we only had about 30,000 come in and 2021, there were 17,000 backpackers. So we're significantly down on numbers, you know, in terms of people coming into the country. Um, and I don't think really, you know, the, the other kind of um, that four, five, seven type arrangements haven't been suitable enough to get the right type of people in. So it's, it's a huge problem and I can't see it um, ending soon. I hear no, grazies and farmers, they can't even get people to drive trucks, let alone uh, work in an abattoir. It's an extraordinary shortage of just at every level. Well, the visa requirement, Kerry, was if you did three months agricultural work, you could extend your visa. And that that was a really good um, incentive for those, as, as Matt just said, that wanted to stay on for another year. So they would go and work at, at the grain receivable silos or they would they'd go into truck driving or tractor driving um they're just not there. And uh, and a lot of the better operations are now incentivising their good workers through various manners, you know, in regards to sharing part of something to make sure that they stay around. I recall speaking to the uh, previous government, in fact, the Ag Minister, David Littleproud, about, I think it was August or September last year, and he said, he promised, in fact, the visa issue for overseas ag labour would be resolved by Christmas. Well, of course, it didn't happen. Chris, you have a story about a WA abattoir bringing some workers in yeah, the, Tonga. Can you pass that on? That's an amazing story. So the, the one one of the works uh, bought in twenty on visa. It's cost them just on twenty two thousand per person to get them through the process and get them into Western Australia. You know, they've the, the demand is there. They're, they're desperate for workers. COVID has really shaken the Western Australian processing sector. We got it pretty bad over here, but they sort of they dropped the masks a lot earlier. Well, they didn't have masks, and it's just run through uh, the entire state. Actually, when I was over there, I was surprised at how many people, for such a small population, had it all at the same time. I did ask another politician about this uh, labour shortage in the bush, and 
I was brushed off with, he said, I'll look into it. Another bloke told me later, they call him the mirror man because he's always looking into it. <laughs> but it's a shortage, you see, in the in the cafes. You can't get people to serve you coffee. And i also been told by a university mate that there are about 20,000 students shy in Brisbane for, of overseas tourists, oh, overseas students, I beg your pardon, and they were the backbone of that trade that worked in hotels and worked in restaurants, etc., all around regional and rural Australia, and they're not, they're simply not there. Yeah, uh, I, I think too, though, through that whole process, like you've got to remember as well that, you know, parts of the country had significant in lockdown and quite a different experience that was, you know, there were other parts of the world that had lockdown, but if you look to Europe in particular, um, you know, they were not as, not as strict, I don't think, so... And a lot of our backpackers, you know, come from Europe. So I think there's a bit of a perception out there too, or at least, you know, when COVID was still, you know, dissipating, I guess, to a degree, um, there was that perception with some of these foreign backpackers that they don't want to come to a country and then get stuck in lockdown for, you know, for however long it's going to be. So, you know, that's certainly perception from some of the Europeans we speak to that they're not convinced that it's um, the right time to come back to Australia just yet. I'd agree with Matt on that one. That's the vibe that we're hearing is that they don't want to get caught over here. And you find in Europe that the dissemination of information is a lot different. In Australia, we hear about what someone did five minutes ago straight away. Uh, it, might, it takes six or eight weeks over there. And then every second day, we get a shark attack or a crocodile. And they don't like them very much either. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've got the new Ag Minister in my sights for a, in a couple of weeks, so I'll ask, him, I'll ask him about that. Time for a quick break, and this time we're hearing from our podcast partner, Kelly's Finance Group. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. You're back on the grill with Beef Central. Our guest today, market gurus, Matty Dalgalish from Thomas Elder Markets and Chris Harry from Stockco. Now look, a couple of uh, other issues pertaining to livestock and the broader industry. FMD and LSD were told producers should be alert but not alarmed. Is that is that fair enough? We, we should be should we be more serious about especially about uh, um, lumpy skin disease? Absolutely, need to be more serious on both fronts, Kerry. Um, it's the significant disease that we're getting. We're going to have a massive uh, impact to our export program, and it's going to cost us a fortune. Um, from from a, the perspective of you know the beef side, at least with regard to traceability, I think the systems are in place to be able to hopefully lock down any incursion pretty quickly and trace the animals. But I've got some significant concerns around the sheep sector in terms of you know in some areas the lack of uh, electronic IDs. We need to get the the Joe Blow producer to actually take the time to read what FMD is. It's a word that has been bandied around forever. I went to the FMD training course in Nepal. Not until you see it do you understand. Now, in the, in the smaller countries, they look after their animals, they feed them, they water them, they're part of the family. 
in Australia, they get FMD. By the time they feel crook, they sit under a tree and then they don't walk back to water. It's a, it's a huge issue. And I don't think we put enough weight on it right through the whole system, you know, producer agents. Um, I, I think MLA really need to have a drive. There should be a fridge magnet in every house saying this is what you look for. Yeah, there's a, a, a CSIRO did a study years ago what the impact would be if we had FMD in southern Australia and the impact was just multi-billions of dollars but also about 200,000 people out of work instantly. So it's, it is it is, should be uh, of, of considerable concern right across the board. It should, and and Matt, Matt hit the nail on the head there before. The impact is something that that's the piece that we all think that, oh, you'll negotiate your way out of it like... There'll be an immediate stock standstill and there isn't a negotiation around the livestock inside that circle. It's a, it's a, it's a cull eradication program. If you, um, if we, you, if you ask your average, average producer to, tell, to say what lumpy skin disease actually looks like, do you think they could tell you? No. Well, that's, the, that's why the LSD in particular needs an education program. Look, another thing that's come up this week, the ASX has launched... An agricultural index. I know people have been talking about it for years and years and years, but can they be fair to them? The big companies are in the index. I mean, AAK, New Farm, Treasury Wines, of all things. Is it, can it actually work? I mean, if you ponder what the weightage must be for one company versus another, how do they do it? How do they hope to do it? I think, look, I think they can if they're constructed in the correct way. And ASX should, should know how to make these indexes work in terms of being representative of the sector. Certainly, you need to have the companies that are in, engaged in that sector to begin with. Um, and I think there is enough uh, you know, that are listed that, to, to make a workable agri-index. And I guess from that perspective too, you know, for those... Um, for those city folk or people that want to get involved in ag, that's a good way that they can get involved. You know, less management and just buy some ag shares. Yeah, I'm just wondering how you weigh the diversity of, say, Elders versus the A2 Milk Company and what they're contributing and what their value might be. But if it's a if it's an index type product, then you, you're really trying to replicate what's happening as a broad sector. So it probably would be based on market cap of the of the actual stock in particular. So the bigger ones would, would have a, a bigger weighting on the index. But the bigger companies, are most of them are in private hands. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's what I said. There's, obviously, you need to have the ones that are listed to be able to make it work. So in terms of, I guess, being reflective of broader agriculture, it, there may be some issues there if that's the point you're getting at, that it's not as reflective of the whole agricultural sector in Australia. But at the end of the day, it, you know, it, it, it can only be what it's been in terms of what's listed on the, on the exchange to be able to create the index from. And Kerry, just I read quite a bit of it yesterday. If you look at the manufacturing sector, just as a, you know, they've got a commodity price and they've got international influence, which is relatively easy to map because all of your indicators, iron ore, coal, whatever. But we've got the extra of season, and for the unsophisticated investor to look at an indicator that can't actually show you the risk profile around season, I just think, I just think there needs to be more time put into it. You know, there's other factors that the average investor wouldn't even take into consideration. Yeah, it'll be a wait and see, I think, for a lot of people. Losing money on, on an investment, though, is a, is a very quick way to, to learn very quickly. So <laughs> the, the, markets are, the markets are pretty good at, um, at, at learning those things around seasonality when it's possible. Absolutely. Let's close with some uh, price predictions for winter heading into spring. Uh, Chris, first, uh, sheep. Sheep and lamb, you've already mentioned them, but uh, any prognostications further from what you've just said? Oh, look, 
But without being too bullish on it, I think uh, Mutton comfortably 6.50 towards 7. And I think uh, Lamb, it might take a month or so to get there, but it'll be sort of 9.50s in there somewhere. You'll see a couple of spikes, um, but they're, they're always driven by sort of that supermarket, have to have it on the shelf. That's not really a true indication of where the entire industry sits. But I, I think we're pretty comfortable that it will get there. Matthew, uh, what, do the, what do the algorithms tell you? Yeah, certainly I have to go with the levels that I was thinking of when Chris was saying. So mutton, um, you know, above 650, maybe not as high. You know, it might get to the high 600s. I'm not sure if it'll breach 700, but it may just touch there. Um, for, for, for the lamb, like trade lamb, 950 is probably my base. Um, I think there's a, there's a chance we might get close to 10. I'm not sure if we're top 10 this year. There's a few. I've got a few concerns around... Um, you know, just what's happening now in the U.S. with the increased interest rates and how that's going to play out with regards to you know, consumption of, of lamb over there, whether that takes a bit of a sting out of the consumption we saw last year that was quite strong. Um, but, yeah, I think both both the sheep meat either way is, is still pretty robust. Um, you know, for the, for the ecchi, I think we are probably going to go through a bit of an increase through winter, you know, maybe not back to kind of above, you know, 1,200 or anything, but, and maybe not back to the old peak, but, um, maybe into the kind of you know, 11, 60, 11, 70 area. But as we, as we turn into spring, I think we'll start to come off again. Matthew, I was just about to ask about headwinds. You've mentioned that the, the biggest one, which is possible, of course, is uh, interest rates. So that's going to put the clamp on uh, a few intended projects, I would think. Yeah, I think um, obviously uh, when you look at um, this, the, the beginning of this interest rate cycle in the US, when, it, when they first raised the first time around, the yield curve, which is you know, is the difference between the shorter dated kind of two-year bond rate and the 10-year bond rate, it inverted. So it kind of went the one wrong way around to what it normally does. And, and generally speaking, when that happens in financial markets in the US or, or, or interest rate markets, for the last eight times that's happened, it's, it's led to a US recession. So there is some concerns that this cycle will, will probably possibly push the US into recession. And, and the other headwind, of course, is um, there's this ongoing kind of zero policy lockdown for COVID in China that, you know, we're seeing Shanghai come out of lockdown now. But, um, you know, if they can't get on top and stay on top of COVID and they continue to lock down the big cities, I think that could have a, a bit of a problem for Chinese growth rates. And that's the other kind of headwind I can see at the moment. Um, other than other than getting an incursion of those diseases we spoke about. They're, they're the really only risks I can see. I'm not sure I like that word recession, but we shall wait and see. Do it again in another few months' time. Chris Harry from Stockco and Matthew Dalgleish from Thomas Elder Markets. Thank you, man, for your insight and knowledge on the grill for Beef Central. Thanks, Kerry. Cheers, Kerry. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Alenco Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group.